Oh, Father, we thank You that from before time began, You were preparing a way to manifest Your glory, to proclaim Your name, to shine forth, Lord, through history for all the redeemed to appreciate and worship You for Your great works of salvation. Even as we worship the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we mark in our text this morning, the way was further prepared in the fulfillment of the covenant of old. When Elijah to come came, John the Baptist preaching, the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And its emissary, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, was soon to arrive in history and to bring with his arrival the message of the gospel and the very laying down of himself as sacrifice to justify mankind, to resurrect us in his resurrection to newness of life, to assume the throne, the forever throne of David at his ascension, and to proceed to reign and rule over his kingdom until such time as every enemy has been subjected under his feet. So we worship you this morning, Father, for the perfect plan executed in the fullness of time by which we received our salvation when the Holy Spirit applied it to our hearts. As we open your precious scriptures today, let us be thankful for your kindness in delivering them for our reading and study, our love and appreciation, our knowledge and equipping, and help us as a result of this service to proclaim your name until you call us home or until you come. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a precious opportunity we have this morning to behold the Lord's Word, and we'll do so in an overview message of Matthew. To get us started, I would like you to turn in your scriptures to Isaiah chapter 9. The reason for this is, as we will use the first seven verses of Isaiah 9, as a framework to understand its fulfillment in the entire book of Matthew. So as you're turning there, let me give you a title and a brief introduction. This morning's message is entitled, The Kingdom of Heaven. A subtitle that I thought of was, The Trained Scribe's Treasure. Matthew, the trained scribe, according to Matthew 13.52, which we'll touch on later perhaps, has learned from his master, Jesus Christ, that a, a scribe trained for the purposes of advancing, representing the kingdom of heaven, takes out of the treasure of his storehouse both old and new. And so Matthew does, assuming he is the author of this gospel, he draws on the prophecies of old and demonstrates their fulfillment in the new. This is a theme in Matthew, emphasizing all along this overriding proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. So rise with me if you would, stand with your Bible open if you're able, and let us behold the Holy Word of God in the prophet's record, Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Listen, here we have the Holy Word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. 
They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The train scribes treasure the book of Matthew. This morning's disclaimer, we are going to touch on quite a bit of scripture. And the purpose of this message is an overview and summary. We've spent many years on Matthew actually at this point. And while it's normally our practice to do an expository sermon on a portion of text, it's become a habit over the years for me to conclude our study through the course of a book with a final sort of synopsis message that tries to encapsulate and proclaim the big ideas, the central themes of the book in question. So when it comes to Matthew, it seems that that central theme is easy to identify. As we have described in the title of this message, the kingdom of heaven. Matthew is all about the kingdom of heaven. Many have argued for the thematic continuity of the entire Bible appealing to this kingdom theme. There are those who have said the entire Bible, in fact, that the thread of theme that ties it all together is God's kingdom. I don't think Matthew, the author of Matthew, would disagree with this. In fact, on close analysis of his gospel, we find this central idea and organizing concept absolutely pervasive in his gospel. During my study this week, I made a little record, the electronic thesaurus on my phone. I came up with a count trying to document instances where David's lineage, the kingdom of heaven, and Christ as the ultimate king of kings are featured in the text. By my latest count, there are 50 plus texts in the book of Matthew, and some of these are entire chapters that are given to this theme. Other distinctive features, we've mentioned some of these in the course of our study of the book of Matthew, include five clearly defined discourses. They all have kingdom themes. Five clearly defined sermons, you could say, throughout the book. These are are accompanied by literary devices. We've also identified such as parable, the obvious and familiar example, and then one that we've identified I call the narrative imperative continuity which is a fancy word meant to make up for my lack of education to demonstrate to somebody I'm smart, but in reality could be simply described as the words of Jesus often match the works of Jesus in the text, and the two mutually reinforce one another. Where the events recorded alongside the word of Christ proclaim mutually, or where, beside where the word of Christ is proclaimed, they mutually reinforce one another. Matthew is truly the trained scribe that Jesus identified 
in chapter 13. I'll just read that verse for you. In the center of Matthew's gospel, it strikes me that he took this word of Christ to heart and modeled his approach, indeed, after Christ's words. Jesus says, And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has trained, been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. As one who serves, getting back to the author again, the kingdom of heaven by bringing out of his treasure what's new and what is old. Matthew, the author, is certainly a good example of this. One specific old treasure, which well serves, well serves as a framework for Matthew's entire project. And that was a scripture we opened with this morning, Isaiah 9, 1-7. through 7. Here the prophet, that is Isaiah, highlights specifics of Messiah's person-purpose and proclamation, what to look for, what will happen, how will things change, what are the implications of his arrival, the landscape of history, what will be different after he leaves, what will follow in his wake. All of Matthew could be charted, this is my thesis this morning for a summary of the book, all of Matthew could be charted as a documentary of the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 1-7 through as it relates to the kingdom of heaven. Today, we will provide sample instances throughout the text of fulfillment, uh, dividing the prophecy in four categories. That leads me to a heading for you today. The heading is this, Kingdom Confirmation, Kingdom of Heaven Confirmed, Kingdom Confirmation Documented as Jesus Does Four Things. And again, these are categories of Isaiah's prophecy. He reaches the outcast, he reveals his word. He reverses the fortunes of the lost, and he realizes the ultimate throne of David. Kingdom confirmation documented in Matthew's gospel as he does these four things. In our primary text, or our framework text this morning, Isaiah 9.1 has said, he has proclaimed, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time he has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. I mentioned to you in in our last message that can be translated in the Greek also, Galilee of the Gentiles, or Hebrew equivalent, Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the nations. That is uh, Galilee of the ethnos or the people groups, the disparate factions who receive the proclaimed word of Christ. So Isaiah 9.1 prophesied that Jesus, one confirmation of the arrival of the Messiah, is that he would reach the outcast. And so we see this documented in Matthew as Jesus inaugurates his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. In where? No, uh, nowhere else than Galilee itself. None other, I should say, than Galilee itself, at least in his initial foray into the proclamation of his word and the demonstration of his works, and indeed most of his time was spent in this place. Isaiah 4.12, Now when he, Jesus, had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew, where? Into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory, and you'll notice this is a direct citation or fulfillment of the text of old Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes from our framework text, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, 
the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus proceeds from this point to proclaim the first command, the first message of His kingdom, the primary and foundational utterance from His incarnate lips, repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there is our theme. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus begins His Galilee ministry fulfilling Isaiah 9-1, beginning to reach the outcast. By proclaiming repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. It's on the precipice. We're right upon the threshold. A brief historical note about Galilee. What could we say about this place? Galilee had within its region some of the first areas to be conquered by the oppressor, Assyria. Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom at that time and hauled people away as captives. They also relocated Gentiles in. Also, this region was an area of dispute and exchange. Um, Solomon was famous for giving away a portion of it to Hiram King in payment for cedar supplied for the temple. This region and the further reaches also never got totally eradicated of Gentiles. And so there was ethnic disparity there. There was a track record of affliction. There was an early record of conquering by neighboring warring uh, uh, nation and so on under the judgment of God. And there was disparate peoples. All of this combined to create a sort of uh, a distance and a sort of prejudice between the northern portions and those who considered themselves more pure and privileged in the Judean area. And so these were the outcasts. These were those to whom Jesus went to reach. Now we find that they were not only ethnically outcast, but further description even in, the, in this text today in Matthew 4 describes these conditions. In verse 23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming again the gospel of the kingdom. And listen, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The outcasts, as represented by these debilitating diseases, are in the record to demonstrate the fulfillment of the Messiah now walking in the footsteps of Isaiah 9.1. Verse 24, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, that's that same region, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and then we have as a footnote, also from Jerusalem and Judea, as it were, from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus' Galilean ministry is initiated with his first message of the gospel of the kingdom, declaring to the outcast, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These were the Gentiles, if you will, or the disparate peoples who because of their mixed ethnicity and, and the fact that they were despised, they were spiritually, physically, socially, ethnically downcast. Rejects and sinners all. And Christ fulfilling the mandate of old, the prophetic mandate of old, made this His first and priority stop in His earthly ministry. Kingdom confirmation documented as Jesus preaches the message of the kingdom in Galilee. Two other examples quickly. Turn over to chapter 8. 
These are two specific examples of the same concept, Jesus reaching the outcast when an unlikely hearer is touched by the power of the Messiah. We read of this in Isaiah, or I'm sorry, in Matthew 8, verse 5 and following, with the centurion. It says, when he, Christ, entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord. So already there's surprising interchange here. There's a beseeching, a prayer to it, even a worship. You could describe it as there's a coming out of reverent honor to a higher authority from this presumably Gentile leader of soldiers. And he says, my servant is dying paralyzed, verse 6, at home suffering terribly. And he that is Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. Listen to the revelation that is coming forth by the evident faith of this outcast. I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in, where? The kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in their place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, And to the centurion, Jesus says, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And so this is a specific occasion where Jesus breaks the rules of the old covenant order, as as it were, better said, fulfills what was prefigured there. And reaching beyond the ethnically privileged, the typologically privileged of the Israelites and brings the message of the kingdom to a Gentile who has faith, this centurion who comes to him as his Lord and Savior of his son's sickness, and indeed more than that, ruler of the kingdom of heaven. And so the centurion is an example of the kingdom confirmed as Jesus reaches the outcast. Final example, let us turn to the story of the Canaanite woman in chapter 15. This becomes even more unlikely still. A woman, clearly a Canaanite, even more ethnically, culturally ostracized, unlikely to be the recipient of Jesus' words. In fact, by his own admission, not who he primarily came to reach at this particular time. However, she would join all the Gentiles who would hear the gospel after obedience to the Great Commission would take place after the fullness of his incarnate work. But as a precursor and a foreshadow of that, we find this account, Matthew 15, 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the distant district of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus' ministry was not efficient. He didn't purchase a bunch of, you know, uh, radio stations, not that the technology would afford him that ability, but he didn't, uh, you know, basically create a strategic movement to have ambassadors and multiply himself in the best possible way. He spent a lot of time with just a few people. The multiplication would come in due course. But this was not a recommended PR plan. This isn't the way kings typically published their news. So why would Jesus just go way out of his way up to Tyre and Sidon to withdraw to this district? Well, he knew by the decree of the Lord guiding his footsteps that there was something 
significant in store. And it was an illustration of going to find that one lost sheep, as it were. And we find her, illustrated in this text, as the Canaanite woman, 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region, again, unlikely region, where the outcast can be found. She came out and was crying, have mercy on me. Notice how she addressed him. O Lord, son of David. The most learned individuals within Judea proper did not recognize Christ as the son of David, and it wasn't for lack of memorizing the Torah. What did this woman have that the Pharisees didn't? She immediately connected with this man and knew that he was prince, he was king of the kingdom of heaven. He was the forever heir of the lineage of David, son of David. Well, she knew by the power of the Holy Spirit that would show the manifest glory of God by welcoming in the outcast, even you, even me. And so we have her story. She cries, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. This to illustrate again the unlikely situation. Disciples came and begged him saying, verse 23, send her away, she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Pause there. Could you imagine the politically incorrect nature of this statement, judging it by modern sensibilities? You're a woman, you're a Gentile, you're a dog. No, no thanks. I'm not going to even give you the time of day. It appears to be the way that Jesus is addressing this woman. Now, this is to illustrate that the gospel is reaching the outcast, the unlikely, those who have been considered such until such time as the gospel changes everything. And so it does. Verse 27, she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Pausing, illustrating how every sinner comes to Christ. We don't come to him as a superior intellect, having exhausted by uh, you know, reason of our great process of intellectual elimination, all arguments to the contrary, now I'm ready, I'm finally decided that Christianity is the right way to go. I think it is a thinking and respectable man's religion. It's not how anyone comes to Christ. You come into the kingdom of God as a little child who recognizes your poverty of spirit, soul, and body, and you cry in desperation, like a dog begging from his master a little crumbs if, if he could spare anything because you're absolutely dependent on what he can supply. And so she did. Verse 28, then Jesus answered her and listened to these words of commendation and gospel fulfillment. O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Praise the Lord. The kingdom confirmation documented as Jesus reaches the outcast. Secondly, his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is confirmed that it is on the precipice as he reveals his word. Isaiah 9, 2-3 speaks of an awakening and enlightenment of these regions. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. This is commensurate with the scriptures when it describes an awareness a coming to the knowledge of the truth, like a light switch turning on, a revelation, an awakening, a resurrection, an awareness 
that the darkness of sin and death and depravity had previously kept shadowed and shrouded and veiled from your knowledge and your imagination. Verse 23, as a result of this prophesied enlightenment, if you will, this knowledge of the truth dawning on the recipient, he multiplies the nation, he increases its joy, they rejoice before him as with joy at the harvest, and they're glad when they divide the spoil. And so the land erupts in celebration as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, as Paul describes it, in the face of Jesus Christ, arrives on the scene of these outcast regions, and he reveals his word. What was his word? In Matthew 4, 23, there again, the message of Christ is summarized in this phrase, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming what? What was his word summarized in four uh, words? He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So throughout the Galilean region, Christ is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He is revealing His word. And after chapter 4, He begins to do so by His first great discourse in this book. And let us just touch on the very beginning and notice its introductory theme. Seeing the crowds, of course, He, Jesus, went up into the mountain, 5.1, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. You could also see the significance of mountains we've referenced recently as well. Certain things happen on mountaintops of particular importance within the book. And this was one of those moments. He begins to preach, expand on the gospel of the kingdom. What is it? What does it sound like? Verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Finally, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Again, what is their reward? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven and proclamation of these terms, the Beatitudes as we've called them, is the introductory theme to Jesus' message. As He confirms He is Messiah and His kingdom has come, as He proclaims that He will join with joint heirs in the kingdom of heaven who recognize their need and lean on Him, cry out to Him, depend on Him for their sustenance in every category of life, spiritually, physically, eternally, and otherwise. The discourse themes in Matthew continue to highlight the kingdom. Of course, we don't have time to touch on them all, but we have in the course of our messages. I've labeled the themes as follows. You could sort of call, I think, chapters 5 through 7, the constitution of the kingdom of God. It lays out the terms and conditions of right standing with the Lord. Later, Christ in His sacrificial self-giving on the cross gives us the ability to actually be in good standing with Him. But we learn of the perfection that God requires in the constitution of the kingdom in His first great discourse. Second great discourse appears in chapter 10, Kingdom Commission, and this is the proto-commission, if you will, where ambassadors or emissaries for the kingdom of God are given the words, the marching orders to go forth. We've also remarked in the past that there are four basic categories of kingdom. There's the sovereign, the subject, there's His realm, and there's His law. 
And these are four ways of understanding the nature of a kingdom. All of these, with respect to Christ, give us a fuller understanding of what it means that the kingdom of God has come. It means that there is a sovereign. He is king, and we find that to be the case. That he has subjects. In fact, everyone born by his created rule and reign and sovereignty over them is his subject. But we find that some are in good standing, and some stand under his judgment. We find the reaches of his realm are inexhaustible. They're coterminous, if you will. They're the same as the parameters of the universe and and beyond, if it could be said. His realm is unfathomable in its reach. That is, nothing is outside of His control and His rule. Then finally, we find His law. What does He require? What does this King prescribe for us to be in good standing with Him? We have His teaching in that regard, and so He's revealing it through His discourses. There's kingdom comparisons in the third discourse, where the kingdom is found to be like a number of things described in parable. There's the church of the kingdom. In chapter 18, where the structure of Christ's soldiers and ambassadors is given some form as their commission to move on His behalf. And then finally, there's kingdom consequences in chapters 24 and 25. Just to give you one example, turn to Matthew 13. Again, this is our overview. We find kingdom confirmation in the enlightening of these regions to the knowledge of Christ's revealed Word. And He does this in painstakingly exhaustive detail. And chapter 13 is an example of this over and over again. He says to the hearer, Hear then, this is verse 18, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, again, the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. I'll rely on your memory to supply the rest of that parable, but note the theme. This is the word of the kingdom and its plight that is described in this parable form. Verse 24, he, Christ, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. You see, the kingdom of heaven again is featured. And just so we don't forget it, he repeats this a number of times. A mustard seed is compared to the kingdom of heaven, verse 31 and following. He goes further to describe (coughs) a couple of other examples. Verse 44, a treasure hidden in the field. And again, the pearl of great price or a dragnet. And verse 47 to the end of the chapter, and that's the same chapter where he says, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained in the kingdom of heaven, for the kingdom of heaven, is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure old and new, what is new and what is old. And so Christ is revealing his word. In his final discourse, let's touch on this as our final example of kingdom confirmed in the message of Christ. In his final discourse, there's something of a crescendo that's building. As we mentioned last week, and this will be in chapter 25, the implications of the kingdom of heaven arriving with its king, Jesus Christ, become weightier and weightier as the full flowering of his revelation is revealed through the course of the gospel. And he closes his final discourse with words such as this, and this is verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, now we see this powerful A revelation, this powerful description of him as judge, sovereign over all, and all angels with him. This to indicate that celestial beings and all the created world, in fact, are under his command. Then he will sit, again, this to indicate that judicial position of judge sitting upon his throne. He will sit on his glorious throne. Submit to you, this is the throne of David. Verse 32, before him will be gathered who? All the nations. Again, the reach of his realm. 
And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king, Christ identifying himself as king, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, Trinitarian language, inherit it, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so Christ is preaching a forever kingdom at this point, which in its glorious and fullest manifest form will culminate with a final judgment and an establishment of the throne of David that you and I will receive all the benefits from if you're in Him today. And those who do not will be cast into outer darkness. These, he says, in close of this final discourse, verse 46, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. No prophet had ever spoken like this before. Jesus assumed the authority of God himself in his very words. He stunned his hearers. Do you remember the reaction in Matthew chapter 7 after this, this first sermon or great sermon as we have it in the record. What did they say? That Jesus finished these sayings, verse 28, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. He was teaching them as the son of David, that is. He was teaching them as king of the kingdom of heaven, not as their scribes. And so the kingdom was confirmed as Matthew documented his reach to the outcasts and his revelation of his message, his word. Thirdly, this morning, kingdom confirmation documented as Jesus reverses the fortunes of the lost. Glorious hope and prophecy comes in Isaiah 9, looking forward to the day of Christ. You have multiplied, verse 3, or excuse me, verse 4, for the yoke of his burden. Now, speaking of these areas that were starving for the Messiah. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This prophetic and poetic language indicates a reversal of the circumstances. No longer conquered oppression, but instead the opposite, triumphant glory, was the expectation and so Christ, in confirmation of this very text, reverses the fortunes of the lost. And this happens everywhere he goes and in every possible category you could imagine. Signal healings happen over and over again to illustrate a reversal of fortunes. There are four blind uh, accounts of blind, the blind receiving their sight. And in each one, it is so interesting, it's so deep and profound that the term son of David is confessed in context. Behold, one of them in, Psalm, uh, in uh, Matthew 9, 23. Jesus came, oh, if I have my, uh, oh, here we go, 27. And Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Let's pause right there. These men were blind, proving to us that the knowledge of who Christ was the heir to the throne of David is not available to those who see merely with natural eyes, but available to those who by faith have the eyes of their understanding open to perceive. Messiah has come and Isaiah 9 is fulfilled. 
and my fortunes are reversed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. My spiritual sight, the blindness, is now given way to spiritual eyesight where we behold Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Have mercy on us, son of David, verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. That he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. Their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. They couldn't help themselves. After all, you can, real, or you can see why they would been, have been so encouraged. They, this didn't come as welcome news to all. Verse 32, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, excuse me, the Pharisees, in a moment you'll see them object. But here's another, here's another reversal of the fortunes that we have right in our text. Verse 32, as they were going away, the blind men, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him, so his capacity to speak was hampered by this demonic force. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Uh, They belonged to a different kingdom, these Pharisees. And the battle lines were drawn. The more miraculous evidence of the Messiah's arrival reached their ears, the more they hated him. It didn't even matter if Lazarus rose from the dead. That was enough to motivate them to plot his death. How ridiculous to think of that plan and that conspiracy. Yet it illustrates to us that there were those who were citizens of the kingdom of heaven that saw Christ as the one who had the power to reverse their fortunes. And there were others who feared him because he he represented the destruction of their fortunes. And the Pharisees knew he would obliterate their influence because they could not compete with this man. How would they hold sway over the people? How would they maintain their influence? How would people look up to them and exalt them to the place of prominence in their public meetings and dinners and so on if this was suffered to continue? And so Jesus is reversing the fortunes of the lost. There are more examples. It's hard to know when to start or where to start and where to stop in citing them. Suffice it to say, chapter 12, verses 22 through 28, has another record of blind men being healed who confess Jesus as Lord and more specifically the Son of David. Turn, though, for a last example to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, Jesus has signaled a shift in his ministry by setting his face toward Jerusalem. On the way, he encounters another incident. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They were unmoved by the peer pressure of the majority. They trusted this man was the heir of David's throne. He was Christ come in flesh, their Messiah, their Lord, the one with the power to reverse their fortunes. So they did not listen to the claustrophobic influence of culture, but instead cried out, have mercy on me. A gospel cry indeed, verse 32, and stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Immediately after this, Jesus enters triumphantly into Jerusalem as their king. And there are more who confess that he is the son of David upon his entry. We see this in verse 9. 
But these are not all the blind individuals to be healed. We see more receive their sight in verse 14, same chapter in the verse, uh, chapter 21. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And so we see Messiah has arrived. In these signal healings, he is reversing the fortunes of the lost. He is giving blind eyes sight. He is healing the paralytic, giving life to his limbs. He is raising the dead to newness of life. He is giving words in the mouth, words of worship in the mouth of mute men, demonically oppressed from birth. He is saving the paralytic from the debilitating effects of his disease. He is curing leprosy by a touch of his hand. In the Old Covenant, the rule was stay as far away from the privileged area of God's presence if you are a leper. The reversal of the fortunes of the leper is demonstrated in Christ's own work because when they touch him, they are healed. Suddenly, a leper is not the outcast. A leper is one who is a candidate for salvation, a signal healing, illustrating that when a leper is cleansed by the touch of the Messiah, you know that's kingdom confirmation. All the while, Jesus is prophesying a mission, and his prophecies increase with frequency and emphasis, and they build as he's going to the cross in Matthew 20, verse 17, in the context of what we've just read. As he was going to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This, of course, would be the necessary act to reverse the ultimate fortunes of those who place faith in him. His death was necessary to reverse the curse of their sin. This uh, message of ultimate reversal was also signaled in an important healing in chapter 9. Again, I apologize for skipping around, but it is so apropos of this theme that I think it bears mention. Getting into a boat, 9-1, he came to his own city, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take up your bed and walk. No, first of all, he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. They would be right if he did not have the power to reverse the curse of sin. Demonstrating that he had the power to do so, we see the account concluding in the following, verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know, listen, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. As Son of David, as King of the Kingdom of Heaven, He is asserting exercising, demonstrating, proclaiming his authority. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home, and the crowd saw it. And they were afraid, and rightly so, because they had encountered a man who just demonstrated he had the power to reverse the fortunes of a paralyzed man, and in so doing, also his sin. They glorified God 
who had given such authority to men, it says. And so we see kingdom confirmation documented. Christ has reached the outcast. He's revealed His word. He's reversed the fortunes of the lost. Final point this morning. Christ, in Matthew's account, is documented to realize the ultimate throne of David. Realize in this sense is to acquire, to ascend, to fulfill. Christ realizes the ultimate throne of David. There's other words you can substitute for ultimate, but they're more technical. Antitypical would be one. Antitype is the fulfillment of that which was previously symbolized. David's throne was a prior symbol. The antitypical fulfillment was Christ come, the forever son of David. You could also say eschatological, which is a term that refers to the purpose and end of things. So the purpose and end of David's symbolic reign is that one day a forever son would ascend to his throne, rule perfectly, rule totally, completely, absolutely, gloriously, in holiness forever and ever. And this is the message of Isaiah 9, is it not? For to us a child is born, verse 6, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. The prophet speaks of a kingdom here, does he not? On the throne of David and over his kingdom, yes, in fact, he does, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And God the Father demonstrates his zeal to accomplish this great work of prophecy all throughout the text of Matthew from beginning to end. At the beginning of Matthew, we see evidence of this in the way the book opens. The book opens with a lineage, which is not insignificant indeed. Notice how the introduction of Christ is ordered according to genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Christ, who? The son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, the son of Abraham, referring back to two prior covenants that revealed who the Messiah must be. And so he fulfilled both in his ensuing ministry, life, and work. Verse 17, the author goes on to say, All the generations from Abraham to David were 14. David to deportation of Babylon, 14. Deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Again, significant milestones in interpreting the meaning of history. Abraham to David. And then from David to this darkness. And then the darkness reversed when the Messiah comes, fulfilling Isaiah 9. 1 through 7, from beginning to end, this is the case. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Joseph is son of David. And then we have this infant son introduced to us in the following event. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born? Who? King of the Jews. Wow. For we saw his star when it rose, we have come to worship. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Do you see it? King versus king. A worldly authority with importance and power, empirically demonstrated in his iron-fisted rule over this region, now suddenly has his authority questioned by dignitaries traveling from the east looking for not him. Ah, no, not you, not you. We're looking for the king of the Jews. We saw his star. No, 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 not you. 
assembling all the chief priests and scribes in his morbid curiosity, Herod, you know, seeks out what is the meaning of this prophecy. They tell him, that's true. Bethlehem and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod summoned the wise men, and you know the story, through his conniving, he tried to get them to report to him. When they finally find the babe, and they're going to the house, the child, they see him with Mary, this verse 11, his mother. What do they do? They aren't taken aback and think, well, this star, we must have followed, you know, Beetlejuice instead of the North Star and recalibrate their efforts because it's just a child after all. No, again, through the eyes of faith, they recognize that the prophecy has been fulfilled and even the celestial bodies, heaven and earth, are testifying to the same. And so in faith, these foreign dignitaries worship Him. They worship Christ. They come bearing gifts that hadn't been seen from foreign nations in the nation of Israel since the heyday of Solomon. They open their treasures, says in verse 11, and they offer Him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I love this last verse, verse 12. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. They had no interest in the kings of earth and their authority and their message to Him they had just worshipped the child king and understood that he was Lord of Herod. They're going to defy Herod and follow Christ. Do you follow Christ? Do you defy the kingdoms of this earth? Our Messiah is no longer a child. Our Messiah has been killed, resurrected, and ascended. He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high, subduing all kings and nations under his feet. Do you worship Him today? Do you have the eyes of faith that these foreign dignitaries had with little knowledge and little experience, yet the Spirit moved upon their hearts so that they would embark upon this journey? Their eyes would be enlightened when they arrived before the King of Kings? I trust you do if you're a believer in this room this morning. If you do, then you can shout with those who welcomed Him, Hosanna! Blessed be the Son of David. In Matthew 21, there's this coronation ceremony, if you will. As Jesus is drawing near to the Mount of Olives, he gives instructions to secure a mode of transport, a donkey, a lowly beast, it would seem. But we find a closer look again from the old treasures. Fulfillment are taking place in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Behold your king. Zechariah 9.9 had prophesied this moment, and the eyes of the faithful perusing the scriptures and waiting for the dawning of this day would have seen and echoed Hosanna to the son of David, and so they did. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They beheld their king. We behold our king this morning in these scriptures. We have beheld our king in the entire record of Matthew. We have beheld in this record the confirmation of his kingdom as he's reached the outcast, revealed his word, reversed the fortunes of the lost sinner, and realized the ultimate throne of David. We have beheld him in his word. And so I adjure you, I exhort you, worship him, worship the son of David, 
cry with the children in the temple, beholding his power to heal, to reverse the fortunes of the lost. Hosanna to the son of David. And don't cower in rebellious cynicism like those who deny that he is king of kings and lord of all do yet today. At the close of Matthew's gospel, which we covered at length last week, we find Jesus asserting his authority. We find that he has made full payment for sin, that he has satisfied every prerequisite for salvation. As you ask this question, you may ask yourself, you know, where does it appear in the text that the fortunes of the sinner are in fact reversed? I should mention this in passing before we close, but in Matthew 26, 27, as Christ institutes the new Passover, as it were, he takes a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, the disciples, and he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so immediately after this, the trial, the arrest, and the conviction and the crucifixion of Jesus take place, thus satisfying the conditions for the ultimate reversal of the sinner's fortunes. But at the point we find him at the close of this gospel, Matthew is careful to tell us again that he's in Galilee, full circle, the place where he started fulfilling the message of Isaiah 9, and he calls his 11 disciples to the mountain again. And in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Addressing their doubts and addressing their call, he says the following, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we would be remiss if we did not take this message to wherever God sends. The message that Christ is Lord of all. He is King of kings. All authorities must bow or be judged. And all nations must confess that He is Lord, the glory of the Father. And all nations are transformed when the gospel of the triune God transforms, reverses the course of sinners' hearts. Kingdom confirmed, as Jesus has reached the outcast, revealed His word, reversed the fortunes of the lost, and realized the ultimate throne of David. Let us pray. At the close of this book, as we have studied it, in beholding Matthew's gospel, the glory of God manifests through the establishment of His kingdom that we may be fearless and faithful ambassadors of Jesus Christ, Son of David, King of Kings. Let us close in prayer. O oh, Father, we thank You for the glorious treasure that we have beheld in Matthew's gospel. Treasures of old and new, gloriously intertwined in a priceless tapestry of redemption are available for the eyes enlightened by the Spirit to treasure and then to be emboldened by their truth and to go forth and proclaim with the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, quickening them, giving them words to speak, even when they are drugged before kings and people in authority and courts and rulers of this earth, to proclaim Jesus 
is Lord. Lord, make us, we pray, faithful ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, grant us repentance for the times when we cower under the authorities of man because we fear their power to threaten. Give us grace to embrace the blessing of persecution as you, as you proclaimed in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who suffer who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In summary, give us the eyes of faith to see the kingdom of heaven beyond what we see with these physical eyes. So like the blind men of old, we might have the fortunes of our understanding and our future reversed as we see Jesus Christ for who He is, then proclaim Him to others. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins. Thank you for rising again. Thank you that you have ascended and assumed the throne of David. Thank you that you have received the kingdom from the ancient of days. And thank you that you have shed your grace upon us to make us, though unlikely in our sin as we are, your ambassadors to bring this message to yet another generation. May we be found faithful in doing so by the power of your spirit, to the glory of your great name. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.